This podcast is part of the Bombpod Media Network. Tony Merkel, host of The Confessionals, a Bomb Pod Media Network podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events. From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into The Confessionals as we explore mysterious and real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. And many thanks to Hillbilly Horror Stories for having me on the show. I'll see you all on The Confessionals. All right, guys, and welcome to episode 60 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. This is Jerry, and I'm joined by my lovely wife, Tracy. Hey, guys, how are you? Well, we've got a surprise for you. Uh, we're actually on vacation this week, and we're uh, actually, as we speak, we're at Scarefest. And, well, not as we speak, because actually this is in advance, but when you're hearing this, we're actually going to be uh, just getting back from Scarefest. And we didn't really have an opportunity to do a full show like we normally would. So I went to our fantastic Patreon uh, listeners, and I said, hey, we're going to be out of town, and we've got Scarefest, but we don't want to not have a show out that week. We've went um, almost roughly 60 weeks, obviously, without missing a show, and we don't want to miss this week. And as you know, our Patreon uh, subscribers who actually pay anywhere from a dollar to $10 a month, they get bonus episodes. And I asked those guys, I said, look, I know you pay for this. But would you guys be okay if we took one of these bonus episodes that is done just like a regular show and put it up that week that we're out? That way it fixes two problems. First of all, you guys get a show instead of us and we get a break. So not that we need a break, but we do need a break. So, <laughs> uh, But it gives us a much needed week off, but at the same time we don't miss a show. So you're going to get to hear what the Patreon listeners get to get to listen to. And it's also going to be good for you guys to see that because a lot of shows, when they do Patreon, they'll release a couple of bonus episodes to everybody so you can see what you're going to get. And we didn't do that. So you guys, if you're not a Patreon, you really don't even know what these bonus shows are like. So this is going to give you a taste of what the bonus show is. Uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight, it's a two-parter. It's going to be on The Son of Sam. And uh, most people will tell you this may be our best show uh, that we did on Patreon, and it's one of the best shows that we've ever done. 
So I think you're going to enjoy it. But we do Son of Sam, and then we go into uh, The Beast of Bray Road. So you get a little bit of paranormal, a little bit of tra- true crime. Uh, these episodes are always an hour or so. Uh, but I also wanted to make sure that our Patreon listeners didn't get shafted this week, and the only episode's up is one they've already heard. So what we're going to do is we have, at the very beginning of the show, I did a really cool interview uh, with Ryan from Rumor Flies. Uh, they're actually part of the Dark Myths Collective, the group that we're in. And he came on and did about 40 minutes of talking about uh, haunted bars in New Orleans because that's where they're from. And he did 40 minutes talking about haunted bars. And he's got a cool-ass story that ties in with the uh, axe murder deals that we did with the, the uh, axe man. Because they were right in that area where the, uh, the axe man of New Orleans and there is actually a woman that at one point in time with a cult that they are trying to pin a lot of these on. And it's a fascinating story. And he's going to come on and tell you about that. So that's how we're going to start off. We're going to uh, do 40 minutes with them. I think you're really going to enjoy him. He's a, a great storyteller. And then we're going to go into the bonus episode. And uh, so when it's all said and done, you're going to end up with uh, about a two-hour show tonight. So not too bad for us having a week off. Yeah, we appreciate you guys uh, understanding and being patient. And it's not that we need a vacation from this part of our lives. It's we need a vacation (laughs) from the working part of our lives. Yeah, we like this part. Oh, yeah. Uh, But when you combine the two together, it's it's daunting. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, I'm not not looking for any kind of sympathy, but the reality of it is we started this right before I had my heart surgery. And over the last year, I took four weeks off for heart surgery that was supposed to be six to eight weeks. And jumped right into working six days a week, 70 hours a week, plus 20 hours a week on the podcast, not including the extra episodes we do uh, for basically over a little over a year now. And uh, I am worn out. I'm not going to lie. So it would be nice to actually uh, get all this done in advance and and have some fun. But we appreciate all you guys, and we love you. And uh, that's why we didn't want to have a week where you didn't have an episode. We know some of you really depend on these to get you through your horrible Mondays. (laughs) So uh, we appreciate it, and and this is what we did for you. And like I said, we went the extra mile to get some extra bonus episode uh, in there for the people who have already heard this one. So we love you guys and enjoy, and we will see you next week. I'm joined on the phone now with uh, Ryan from Rumor Flies. And, Ryan, you guys are are part of our um, uh, the Dark Myth Collective, so you're a, a brother, so to speak. And, yes, uh, we are. You got a really cool show, and I, and I first found out about your show when you did a crossover episode with the Mad Scientist uh, podcast, which we've had uh, uh, Chris on our show before, uh, and I thought it was a fascinating, and that's that's really the the show that got me uh, looking listening to your backlog. So tell me a little bit about your show. What draws the listeners in? What what are you guys? What what is the main premise of your show every week, and who's a part of it? So I think uh, one of our guys, Greg, has a better tagline than me for it, and I think I'm going to steal it from him. Uh, he says that Rumor Flies uh, looks into the myths, misconceptions, and uh, general urban legends throughout everyday culture, and we try to get to the bottom of it through anything from just book smarts to easy uh, Google searches, nothing that is like heavy testing or research, not like Mythbusters, uh, to say, where you just they go out and test stuff in a lab, as much as I love we have one, but we don't. <laughs> uh but in general, we just try to get to the original source of all these like myths and misconceptions uh, anywhere between history to food to uh, mass media to sports, uh, just about anything you could think of. The only thing we don't really touch is religion or politics, 
but everything else is pretty much on the table and we do everything we can to find the original source of where this rumor started or even if it's true uh Usually it's hard to get both at the same time, but sometimes we do. And occasionally we try to keep it a little bit lighthearted if possible. Yeah, you guys do a good job of, of uh, interacting with each other. So it is a, a really lighthearted show. It's really fun. Uh, give a couple of examples of some show topics you guys have had uh, over the course of your, uh, your podcast. Oh, boy. Uh, some stuff that's as simple as, you know, was there cocaine in Coca-Cola? That one's always a pretty big favorite. The whole thing of was Walt Disney Frozen? Uh, one of my favorite ones that happens to be a history one, even though I'm not a history major, uh, Paul Revere, the guy that did the ride and, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming. Simple one for that one. Number one, there were several people. Number two, he got caught halfway and didn't make it. Other people did. Uh, he got turned away and they just took his horse and he had to walk back. Number three, everybody was British back then. Uh, so that was not exactly a good thing to say. They actually said the regulars are coming. So it's stuff like that that you don't even think of really. Uh, like the British are coming type of deal that I love. It's one if those where there's that little bit of logic where once it hits you, you're just like, wow, okay, now that doesn't make any sense at all. So it's that type of stuff. Another, we, another off the top example is when we just like looked up the whole myth about, you know, the head can survive when it's uh, decapitated for some odd amount of seconds after death, after, you know, it's chopped off. I know that's one of the gorier ones, but the Billy horror stories, I figure I can talk about it. Yeah. Uh, it's true. Uh, from all accounts that they've seen, they haven't done it recently because there's something called ethics and science now. <laughs> but now, uh, but apparently back then they did tests and they had a few volunteer uh, executions. Well, I guess executionees, I guess is what you call them. Uh, just say, all right, you're going to blink a few times after you get your head chopped off and we're going to keep trying to wake you up as it's going. And it turns out that there was some, it seems like, conscious response. So stuff like that is fascinating to me. And then there's just stuff like, you know, how to sear the perfect steak. You know, it, it's just... Um, but those two go hand in we hand. We cover everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's better than execution than a barbecue afterwards? That's right. Either way it goes, it's getting fried up. Um, oh, yeah. So... Gotta get the, the cheek has the most fat in it, you know? Oh, okay, I'll stop with cannibalism. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Uh, what made you guys start the show, and who else is on the show? I know Greg's on the show. Uh, is it just you two, or occasionally there's somebody else, correct? So the two main hosts is... Uh, Josh and myself, and Greg uh, likes to consider himself a, well, we consider him it too, uh, a producer and fact checker. He doesn't like to take the mic as much for this show because uh, generally Josh and I uh, have known each other since, Jesus, sixth grade, I think now. But um, to start with, uh, Greg had a podcast previously called uh, Projecting, and it was kind of just an interview podcast where he talked to anybody. And I had known Greg from high school, but then we caught back up after not talking for some odd amount of years. Just, you know, we went to different colleges and everything. Went on there, uh, talked a little bit about uh, my recent, like when I used to work in a lab about, I, I went on his show to pretty much clear up some stuff about, hey, the whole searing steak thing, you're not supposed to do it. And then I talked to clear up some, you know, misconceptions about GMOs, because it's one of the things I'm also very passionate about. Afterwards, uh, he was like, oh, really great, like, uh you ever thought about starting a podcast? And I was like, yeah, well, um, yeah, actually, I have. And it was kind of me pitching the idea of Rumor Flies to him. He thought it was really cool. And at the same time, I had talked to Josh, who I you know, hang out with regularly. And he's the one I have the best rapport with when it comes to just back and forth. And you know, he's a smart guy, too. So 
we decided to, you know, all three start up and get this thing going, and it's just history from there. And, and my apologies to Josh, because that's what I actually meant to say when I said Greg, because I know uh, Greg is a little more in the background, but uh, for some reason, I guess because I talked to Greg earlier, he was in the forefront of my mind. Yeah, we have to prod him with the stick when he's on air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the one of the reasons that, that you're on the show tonight is uh, you had said that, you know, you kind of like the the paranormal, the kind of spooky, the kind of eerie, creepy kind of stories, uh, true crime, that and such, that you guys don't deal with a whole lot on your show. And, uh, oh, yeah. And uh, I said, hey, it'd be cool if you wanted to come on and talk about some of that stuff on this show. So I think you actually worked up uh, some stories to talk about. Yes, I did. One of them is longer than the rest of them. Uh, the main one I want to talk about is somebody named Clementine Barnabé, as they would say in Cajun country. But uh, <laughs> essentially, I want to talk a little bit about her, who is a very um, uh, uncover- like undercovered or miscovered, or I don't know. I haven't seen a whole lot about her on many other podcasts or many mass media. There's only a few articles about them, and it's kind of, uh, I had to kind of throw them all together to get some of the facts straight. And then also, you had mentioned that you were kind of interested in some of the haunted New Orleans bars. And Rumor Flies is based out of New Orleans. And uh, some of these bars that I can actually talk about are actually my favorites uh, that I uh, are in the area. Awesome. So uh, so which one do you want first, the bars or Clementine? Let's go ahead and do, uh, let's go ahead. Which one is the longer story that you say? Uh, Clementine is the longer one. Let's let's go ahead and knock the bars out, and we'll finish up with Clementine. Sure. All right. So, the bars is pretty short. There's actually a lot, a lot, a lot of supposedly haunted bars in New Orleans. However, I think a lot of them are actually, not to demystify anybody on the show, I think a lot of them are really just for tourist attractions, you know. They'll say anything is um, haunted just to get a few people in, and New Orleans has a very rich history. It's one of the oldest cities in the southern United States. Um, It's older than the United States itself. And uh, some of the bars I'm about to mention are as well. And, of course, there's going to come some lore. You know, we had the Great Fire of New Orleans. You guys have covered several paranormal things in New Orleans, such as the Axeman of New Orleans, supposedly, if that's paranormal. Or uh, you also covered Clementine, Bar- uh, not Clementine, uh, Delphine Lalari, who I mm-hmm. actually very much liked that episode. It was a good explanation. Um, awesome. But there are tons of, there's tons of history. The Orleans was built up upon itself several times. As you may have known, um, the House of the Rising Sun, there's like six different locations that they think might be the House of the Rising Sun, <laughs> and they dig up a new one like uh, every five years or so. It's really... Uh, a mysterious city for the most part. I love it and hate it at the same time, but mostly love. Anyway, so we'll get started with the first one that is probably the most famous. Uh, you mentioned Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop particularly to me, and this one is actually my favorite bar in the city. It is originally built in 1772 and is regarded as being the oldest building used as a bar. And I say building uses a bar because there's some place in Rhode Island that is supposedly the longest-running bar in the United States. Now, it's called Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop because it supposedly, during the time of uh, the Battle of New Orleans and during the Spanish occupation, during the French occupation, Jean Lafitte apparently uh, went there a whole lot to make plans for whatever plunder he was doing or whatever battle plans he was planning or whatever treasures he was planning to bury. Apparently, he frequented that place constantly. 
And this building actually does look starkly different from everything else around it. It's one of the only buildings still left in the French Corps that has like the original French architecture from that time that has been minimally rebuilt from. It actually did catch on fire one or two times, I believe. But it, uh, it survived and it's still there. It's awesome inside. When you walk in, there's only candle lighting in there. Uh, they have great drinks. It's always pretty crowded, but it's because it's so famous. There's a piano in the back where there's always a piano player that'll just do any request you want. The atmosphere is amazing. Uh, now, that being said, it also is a place to get trashed if you really want to because, you know, the, the drinks are actually pretty cheap compared to most of the French Quarter. Now, for the hauntings. Some of the lore around it is that there's a fireplace in the middle of the bar right by the actual bar where you get your drinks at. And in this fireplace, they believe that Jean Lafitte actually had buried some of his treasure. And that sounds like kind of a strange place to do that because it's kind of the most hidden in plain sight type of places and it doesn't seem like you'd need a lot to, you know, dig it up. But I like the, th I like the myth. I very, um, in a different state of mind, nearly climbed into that fireplace one time, but that's for another day. <laughs> now, after that, they also believe that Jean Lafitte himself has haunted Lafitte's blacksmith shop ever since he died. And everybody says the whole normal issue if they see a man in the back darkened corner of Lafitte's, which you have to believe that because it is extremely dark back there, especially if some of the candles goes out. They believe they see a man in a, a you know, uh, what's the word for it? Not a typical uh, anachronist clothing than right now, where it looks like he's from the Revolutionary War times, and he's like twirling his mustache and has his black gloves. At the same time, you see much crazier shit in Bourbon Street, so it could be just a regular person. <laughs> I've seen many Jean Lafitte impersonators down there too. Also, I'm just gonna say, I know I'm covering the haunted bars. But I think the last person I want to trust about a haunting that is freshly drunk while telling the story, you know? <laughs> True. Uh, so, I mean, who knows? It might be Jean Lafitte. But this guy actually, uh, he does the rounds because the next place I want to talk to is another place that's very confused. Also, to continue, before I get off of Lafitte's blacksmith shop, apparently Marie Laveau and Delphine Lalari herself have been seen at or around Lafitte's blacksmith shop. Well, so there's a famous cast of characters hanging around that bar. Well, I mean, why wouldn't and, they be? I mean, that's you know, yeah. It's like that's the great. it's like the old the pictures you always see of like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and Elvis all in the same picture. That would actually yeah, be a, right next door they have the 27 Club with Kurt Cobain and you know uh, <laughs> what's her name Janis Joplin hanging out with Jimi Hendrix too. They have an old timey New Orleans we died near these bars club too. Wow. That's, so. Continuing on, uh, and also that's a strange cast of characters if you think. You have a guy that's a pirate or privateer, depending on who you're speaking to, uh, a voodoo queen, and then the exact opposite of voodoo queen. Uh, Delphine Lalari is a miserably bad person, or at least was. Maybe she still is in the afterlife now, but I don't see them having much in common. But no. uh, continuing on, we're going to go to another place called Lafitte's in Exile. Now, a lot of people confuse this place with Lafitte's blacksmith shop, but they are in the same area, and they both hold a certain title. Lafitte's blacksmith shop is one of the oldest buildings in the United States to be used as a bar, and Lafitte's in Exile is the oldest gay bar in the country. So they both have their own uh, claim to fame. Now, 
supposedly Lafitte's in exile was frequented by Tennessee Williams himself, the person who wrote Streetcar Named Desire, you know, uh, Stanley and, uh, uh, what's her name? Stella. Yeah. Stella. And I'm trying to think of, uh, the mistress's name, uh, Blanche Dubois. So Tennessee Williams, the writer of the play Streetcar Named Desire, he is well known in this area. And also he apparently has frequented this bar and is now still frequenting it in the afterlife. But guess who else is? Who? Gene Lafitte and Marie Laveau. Of course they are. Of course <laughs> yes. they are. Well, they're probably coming yes. for the drag shows. Oh, yeah, definitely. Most most certainly. I mean, who wouldn't? They're fun. But anyway, uh, apparently they really uh, like frequent in that place as well. And apparently alcoholism exists in the afterlife. So they are, once again, uh, doing their rounds. So... Going on from the Lafitte's in exile, not much has been said about any history or gruesome history behind it. Lafitte's blacksmith shop, they said they had the fire and then the association with Jean Lafitte. But it gets a little bit bloodier as it goes down here with the list. Um, continuing on, though, Lafitte's didn't really have any issue, any events that I saw that would have led to any sort of paranormal occurrences. And um, I parsed this list from a giant bunch of bars, but a bunch of them were just that stuff like, oh, we believe we heard things behind us or some of the employees saw something moving at night. But uh, these are the ones that I would give a little bit of, I guess, what credence I can to. Well, I, would think, the, I would think being the oldest gay bar, they probably see a lot of Lafitte's behind Lee ears. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, so moving on, the old absinthe house. Now, it actually is a pretty damn old absinthe house because it existed before absinthe was actually outlawed in the United States. Uh, as most people know now, absinthe is a, which also we covered on Rumor Flies, it is not a hallucinogenic, um, it's not a hallucinogenic type of uh, alcohol, as some people say it is. It's just not. It was kind of a smear campaign against it, and most likely people were getting lead poisoning, or they were getting um, methanol poisoning from it, which is a completely different type of deal from a trip. <laughs> so, uh, New Orleans is known for its absinthe. A lot of our cocktails, like the Sazerac, which originated here, or the Old Fashioned, which also originated here, did something, they had an absinthe wash, where you just kind of like put a little bit of absinthe in the glass and then rinse it around and dump it out, and then you pour the rest of your glass, so you have like the aroma of it around the rim. Uh, now, we, it is back in business. It has lots of different absinths. All of them are very good, depending on if you're into like the licorice flavor or the bitter flavor or not. But this place is one of the older bars in the city, too, and there was, once again, a fire near this place, and there have been a few deaths. Not exactly there. They believe that there was um, kind of a bootlegging run. There's old lore that is not really backed up, that there is a tunnel between the old absinthe house and uh, Lafitte's blacksmith shop. That's interesting, but at the same time, we can't dig more than four feet down without making a puddle because we are just so below sea level here. So... There's not a lot of um, credence to that. But there could have been some bootlegger or mafia activity around the old absinthe house at the time, which would lead to this place to possibly be haunted by Jean Lafitte and Marie Laveau. Well, of course. Do you see the underlying theme that's going on here? <laughs> I am I, not bullshitting you on this. I looked at a bunch of different places, even the websites themselves, who said, we've seen these people. And really, um, you know, Tennessee Williams, you can take... Uh, uh, what's his name? It's Marcelo, one of the big mob bosses. 
they just got to parse out these famous New Orleans figures, but you can't all take Jean Lafitte and Marie Laveau. And nobody wants Delphine Lalari because she's just creepy. And, you know, <laughs> just, just she was a general bitch. I'm sorry. That's just what she was. But uh, nobody wants her. So uh, we're going to – I'm done with the Lafitte and Laveau haunts, though. Uh, I got two more that I particularly want to talk about. One of them is called Pat O'Brien's. Uh, have you heard of Pat O'Brien's at all, Jerry? No, he's the uh, the sportscaster, right? Uh, that is a Pat O'Brien. I don't know if this is the same Pat O'Brien, though, because this place I think has been around much longer. This place is um, the originator of a drink. That I'm not sure how well known it is uh, countrywide, but it's called the Hurricane, and yep. it's just generally a rum-based drink with fruit juices and a major hangover to follow. <laughs> it's delicious, but you pay for it. So uh, this place actually has quite a few. Uh, hauntings and one of them is supposedly a ladies bathroom which i didn't know about until today i've been to this place tons of times and i haven't heard anything about this but uh apparently the ladies bathroom on the second floor of pat o'brien's is supposedly uh inhabited by a very very vigilant servant that decided to not take off of her shift after she died supposedly there's been a um a servant woman that would, I guess, be one of the bathroom attendants, I guess you'd call them, that would be in an ethereal form as ladies went in and out of the bathroom or went to go wash their hands and such. Now, this is the worst type of haunting for me because if you go to some places in New Orleans, there are bars where they just have some guy that just hangs out by the door and dispenses soap or grabs a paper towel for you and expects you to tip him afterwards. Yep. I'm not a stingy person. Just I want to tip you for something that I generally will not be able to do easily by myself. <laughs> now, having a ghost do that and they will just follow you and haunt you if you don't tip them, that's a problem. Supposedly, this lady is benevolent, though, and has not really caused any harm to anybody. Now, continuing on, the piano bar, which is, uh, I guess I want to say towards the back of this place, it's, it's a big like L-shaped courtyard, and there's several in, inner places with a restaurant and the bar area. The, the piano bar supposedly has your normal, like almost, um, not poltergeist activity, but just uh, your physical hauntings where glasses are moved across the table, things shatter, chairs are just thrown across like late at night as people are closing up. And that one is the cool one because I think I actually there's like a video floating around the internet somewhere of that happening at Pat O'Brien's. I, I think that was the right place. But it, there's several locations of Pat O'Brien's, so I'm not sure if it was this particular one. But there actually, I think um, one of the ghost shows went there recently. And, um, but anyway, and to top that off, apparently there is a recent haunt there. Supposedly, Pat O'Brien's is also haunted by. <laughs> Ray Walston of My Favorite Martian. I'm not shitting you. That's what they say on the on. They can say anything on the internet, but that's on like a few different haunted ghost tour websites. That apparently a man that looks very much like Ray Walston is haunting Pat O'Brien's and just kind of scaring the crap out of people there. I don't know how threatening Ray Walston would look, but uh, this guy died in 2001. I don't get why he picked Pat O'Brien's afterwards. I don't know. I guess he had some sort of... He was from New Orleans, but he had some sort of connection to here. Uh, if you have any idea of why a celebrity such as him would be there, please let me know. That makes no sense to me. Yeah. So, lastly, uh, the other place that I want to talk about that I've been to several times and is just an awesome, 
awesome place to go. If you guys ever come down here, I would love to show it to you. It's uh, open to anybody. There's a restaurant right by the St. Louis Cathedral in the heart of the French Quarter called Muriel's. And they have a certain place called the the Seance Room. And when you walk in there, there's no Ouija boards or anything like that. There's no seance table. It's just this awesome, dimly lit, like, red lounge that just looks opulent and looks like it hasn't been touched by the modern age since the times of, I would say, like, the 20s or 30s. There's even, like, a full-size sarcophagus in there. It's just plain awesome. I wish I could send you pictures of it. But anybody that Googles the seance room at Muriel's, you'll be in for a treat because you can actually get a drink and then just go enjoy it there. And for some reason, it's not usually ever that crowded. So that place is awesome, but it apparently has a very famous haunt because in the stairwell of Muriel's, if you go up to the second floor to eat, there's a sign, there's a table right under the stairs because they're not exactly a spiral, but they're angled. And right in that little nook, there's a table for a certain gambler that was there at the time, I think uh, in the 30s who was down in his luck, lost everything, and just decided it was over. And he killed himself at Muriel's. And supposedly he still haunts the place, and every now and then uh, the waitstaff will actually bring, if not a full meal, then at least a glass of wine to that table and leave it there as kind of, I guess, you know, uh, pouring one out for their dead gambler homie. But (laughs) that's a pretty cool tradition for uh, Muriel's. Like, I, I love it. It adds, even if it's not true at all, uh, the guy actually has a name. It's just very hard to pronounce. But uh, <laughs> if the if it is even true at all, or if it isn't, it's still a really cool story, and it kind of made me want to go back just because of seeing, like, the ritual to it. I thought it was really cool. It does but, sound uh, cool. That, those, That's kind of like a little tasting of some of the haunted bars that you can go to. Uh, Lafitte's is still my number one to go to, but Muriel Seance Room is also wonderful, but you're going to need, like, a probably, uh, at least a college shirt to go in there. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to, we're going to be down there in August for the, uh, uh, Potter and Love Festival, uh, obviously, so we'll have to make sure you guys show us around a little bit. Oh, I don't know if you're a man of vices, but I will drag you around the corner if you want me to. <laughs> so, well. but anyway... So, can we get to the uh, the bloodiness of Clementine Bonabé? Yes, because I'm very interested in this story. You've, you've piqued my curiosity. Yes, so I think I kind of had an extra hook to it that, I guess, made you uh, let me do this, I guess. But this, um, this story is just another one of your general... It seems like true crime at first, but then it has another layer of it that makes it almost true detective, which is an awesome show. Uh, so... Anyway, it starts in a place called Crowley, Louisiana in January of 1911, when a family was found dead in their house with wounds so grievous that their skulls were split open. Not only was it hit with the front end of the axe, but the assailant had also taken the blunt end of the axe and hit the back of their head and crushed them too. And the killer supposedly, after police investigation, they say he or she entered through a window, killed the family all at once, then left the axe at the head of the bed in a bucket full of the victim's blood in the corner of the room. Creepy enough as it is. And also, I just listened to your recent episode that you had about uh, the axe murders or your grand unifying axe murder theory. Uh, These, you mentioned a few of these axe murders very briefly in passing towards the end of the episode. And we're actually going to give a little bit of um, more exposition to them. Cool. Now, after that January 1911 incident... There was another incident in, depending on which source you're looking at, January or February of 1911, 
also in Crowley, Louisiana. The Byers family, consisting of a husband, wife, and son, were found hacked to death. And the police described them to have been so mutilated that they were, quote, brained with an axe, which is just a weird, weird term that I'm not sure if I'm glad it is no longer in circulation or I really wish that there was a C-list horror movie called Brained with an Axe. (laughs) But that's the way it was described. And I assume if they say Brained with an Axe, that means there were probably some brains spilling out afterwards. Uh, So these are gruesome murders, and nobody was spared. You know, husband, wife, and son. And somebody apparently was very good with an axe, too, because the same thing happened. Axe was left by the bed. Now... February 28th, uh, 25th in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is about 24 miles from Crowley. I, some people say Crowley, I think it's British, but I'm from Louisiana and we say everything wrong, so I'm going to say Crowley, and that's how they say it, so doing it. Uh, the Andrus family, who also consisted of a husband, wife, and two children, one of them three years old, I believe, and the other one was 11 months old. They were murdered and the bodies were arranged on the bed together, and the uh, the parents and the kids. And it was almost like this intentional, like ritualistic type of thing. It seems like the killer is getting a hang of this or is getting more comfortable with, you know, adding a little bit more to the scene. Uh, because Mimi Andrus was propped up over her husband Alexander's body as if in prayer. And the children were laid out neatly at the front of the bed at the feet of the parents. So it's getting a little bit worse. And, you know, I would say that this is um, a pretty... 24 miles isn't long. Even in 1911, there's trains that go that way and back and forth. Uh, Something that I really tried to do for this investigation, uh, or looking at these investigations, was really try to get the distances figured out because you really got to take that into consideration for a case that seems to be so muddled in uh, either rumors or just bad reporting, or just hearsay. And it's just a lot of people want to tie things together. But really, locations is important, just to see how feasible it would be for somebody to be able to do this. Now, uh, the investigations led first to a man called Raymond Barnabay. And he was a known penny felon in the area, and was a general jackass from everything I read. Now, uh, after a fight between Raymond and his mistress, remember I said general jackass, his mistress suggested to a friend that Raymond may have been involved with the murders. So this may have just been like her being spiteful and not really realizing that what she says has consequences. Because um, something that I haven't mentioned yet, but I think will actually play into it later on and now, is just about everybody in the story is black. Everything from the murderers and all the victims. All of them were from poor black ver- uh, like areas of town. So that also is a reason why the investigation may have been kind of poor at the time. But it does have some interesting, like, left and right turns. So um, now that I was saying that, Raymond was, they were, the police were generally looking for any reason to find somebody to arrest. And like I said, she may have not thought of the consequences of just being in that situation and then saying that this man who is known to be a thief and also is probably in one of the lower runs of society at the time may have been the person that murdered everybody, that's an easy way for the police to pick up somebody, get them to confess one way or another, and then just be done with it. And even if the murders were solved or not, the public is not worried about it anymore because they have their supposed man. You you get the following Mm -hmm. uh, of that, I guess, the reasoning for it? Um, So that's kind of what led to Clementine Barnabay to enter the scene. Now, whether it was true or not, what the mistress said, 
Clementine Barnabé and her brother Zephyrin did not help. Now, Raymond's October 1911 trial resulted in his children, uh, Zephyrin and Clementine, testifying against him on the stand, saying that he had come home bloody on occasion and bragged about killing the Andrus family from earlier, along with also threatening the children's lives himself. So Raymond was actually imprisoned after this. So it gets a little bit confusing from here. You would think they have their man because they're pretty much arresting somebody that whether he was guilty or not, nobody's going to miss him being gone. So uh, continuing on, in November 1911, after Raymond was in prison, another family was killed in the same horrific manner. Uh, the, the Randall family from Lafayette, like I said, only 24 miles from Crowley, consisted of a husband, wife, and three children, once again, and were found, uh, let's see, the wife and the children were murdered with an axe. The children were dismembered this time, and the husband was actually shot in the head. So this is the only time that this entire series of murders that a gun will come into play, but everything else was still very much along the same M.O. of the husband, of, you know, the axe murders. Uh, so it's starting to seem like Raymond may have not been the one that did it, considering he was in prison when this happened, or at least jail. So nearly immediately afterwards, uh, Sheriff Louis Lacoste arrested both Clementine and Zephyrin Barnabé on suspicion of a character profile from the trial. Since they got to talk about their dad, their neighbors also had talked about them, because even though Raymond was, was a suspect, everyone around him was too, essentially. And some of the neighbors of Clementine said that they had called Clementine Zephyrin filthy, shifty, and degenerate. You know, the trifecta. So to t on top of that, Blood was also found on Clementine's clothes when they had investigated Raymond for the Andrus murders. And not only that, people supposedly had seen Clementine sneaking around some of the, uh, those parts of town after those murders, like very shiftily in the dark. Whether that's hearsay or not, we don't know. It's just what was said in court. Now, uh, additionally after that, when Clementine was arrested, the investigators found a dress belonging to one of the murder victims spattered with blood and brain matter. Now, Zephyrin got off with an alibi, but Clementine, they had the smoking gun on her, and she was taken to jail. So, needless to say, whether all of these were her, it seems like at least one was. Uh, would you agree with that, Jerry? I mean, I mean that's what it sounds like. Seem, it's starting to seem like there might be a little bit of teamwork going on. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can definitely see how that connection could be made. Yes. Now, here's where it starts getting a little bit crazy. Shortly after Clementine was taken to jail, in January 1912, in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is 50 miles from Crowley, the Broussard family was found ritualistically murdered with an axe. Once again, poor black part of town, and it was a relatively uh, sizable family. So all five of the family were killed with an axe, and their blood was collected in a bucket again. So this is coming back. But here's the crazy part about it. So all of the uh, children in the house, their fingers were splayed with little rolled pieces of paper. So say like you have like a, um, I guess like a candy wrapper or something, just roll it up into like a tube, mm -hmm. and their fingers were either splayed with that or like little pieces of wood or toothpicks. They were splayed in between each other to the point where they're making like a very wide five with their hands. All of them. Every hand. And then afterwards, uh, there was a signature on the door that said the human five, and depending on what source you're looking at, it said it was either written in pencil or blood. 
Now, I don't know how those two are confused, but once again, this story has a lot of different sources, and none of them can seem to agree on everything. So, the Human 5 was listed under there, but over the Human 5 signature was a Bible passage, once again, written in blood or pencil, depending on who you talk to, from Psalm 9. And it said, When he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. So, that is straight up creepy afterwards. You know, it's one thing to murder people, but then to leave cryptic messages afterwards, that's when I would go into full panic mode if I was a sheriff. It's just uh, not something I would ever want on my hands. So, the other murders in, uh, there were other murders in Texas in a similar fashion shortly after this, and a lot of people like to attribute this to Clementine, or around the time they like to do that. But eventually they were traced to a different man named Jim Fields. So she's off the hook, the hook for those. But the reason why people thought that was because there was a train line going between, uh, what's it called, Crowley, Lafayette, and certain parts of Texas like San Antonio and Austin, which it just it's a straight line back to Cajun country. So somebody could get away or get to those areas in a relatively short amount of time. Now, this is when the police start cracking down on Clementine, and this is when she confessed to up to 17 murders as an accomplice with not only her father, but three others in the supposed Human Five, this group that she was talking about. And she said in her first account that they were trying out a voodoo ritual after acquiring a voodoo charm from a very powerful witch doctor. And she, along with the 17 murders, because the ones that I said didn't quite add up to 17 she also invested some murders that happened in 1909 that consequently were done with an axe as well and were also in the near area to Crowley. Now, this witch doctor, after police interview, claimed to be nothing more than a herbologist. Um, <laughs> whether that's true or not, who knows? But it still keeps getting a little bit crazier because the names of the three accomplices that Clementine had included, even though she included her dad with her, so that's one like little credibility right there, the other three names led nowhere. So, either she gave them fake names, or these people are really good at hiding. So, other accounts of her confession, and actually this is what she said on the stand, in a, this is a much um, nicer way that I'm putting it. The way she said it on the stand, and the way the reporter said she said it on the stand, uh, not the best. So, what she said, in general, was that the confessions have her linked to a supposed church of sacrifice, which was a cult led by a Reverend King Harris. This sounds extremely like True Detective to me, by the way. Season one, it's great. Also, I'm in it. Look for me <laughs> in it one day. Um, but uh, just a cameo. She said that the, his congregation regularly had these electrifying sermons that had built up a bloodlust among them. And the murders themselves were a result of certain congregants not following God's word. And their punishment was to be carried out by the human five that being Clementine Barnabay, her father, uh, her father Raymond, and then the three other unknown people. And she would change the story once again, however, to exclude her father because she heard that he was going to get executed if he was guilty. So that's where things get so, so crazy and cryptic, and I almost want it to be real if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, 17-plus people died. Now, her uh, story uh, has a few holes in it, because Reverend Harris was a real person, but he adamantly claimed that neither he nor his associated sanctified church was involved 
uh, with or had even been even heard of this supposed church of sacrifice. Now, that sounds pretty convenient for somebody that's possibly in a church of sacrifice. <laughs> True. Uh, uh, but we'll give him the pass for right now, considering that, you know, um, there was no evidence linking him directly aside from what Clementine said. There was no, you know, smoking gun like video in the basement type of deal. But Clementine retold her story several times in jail, and her death count, according to her, eventually got up to 35. So she was involved in at least 35 different murders. Now, if you are a little bit up on your true crime, that beats number one, who is John Gacy, John Wayne Gacy, with I think 33 is his number. It's either 33 or 37. Either way, that is like running with the best of the best right there, or the worst of the worst, rather. She was trying to get some street cred. What's that? She was trying to get some street cred. Yeah, exactly. You know, even before she's doing this before serial killer was even a term. That didn't come around until like the 50s or 60s. Now, uh, supposedly Clementine was a model prisoner in jail and underwent a quote unquote procedure that allowed her to be released on good behavior after only 10 years. Now, she was put in, this is amazing in the first place, because remember what I said about the whole uh, judicial system? Uh, she was from a uh, poor black part of town and a predominantly white police force, and it was a time when sunset cities were still around. You know, there were times where people weren't even allowed to be around at nightfall. There were people that were in very big danger, especially if they were linked to a crime. Um, I was so surprised. Maybe it was that she was younger and that she was a female that she may have been let off a bit easier. But she was only sentenced to life under the insanity case that she was under perversion. It wasn't even for the murders. It was just perversion. Uh, So she was put in jail, went through this procedure, and supposedly was released after 10 years. So life in jail to 10 years. That's amazing. I don't think anybody gets that right now unless they're exonerated on DNA. I don't know what she did, how model of a prisoner she was, unless she started being, like, unless she started, uh, I don't know, chaperoning all the other prisoners. And this is in Angola, too, which is famously a prison you do not want to go to in Louisiana. Still around. But um, it's amazing. That part is the craziest part to me. And even now, there's supposed um, saying that in the 40s, there was a woman that was told about Clementine Barnabé by her 100-something-year-old grandmother, and that's how the story kind of got some traction again. But when this woman's uh, grandmother died, she was going through a box of her stuff and found an old picture of her grandmother, and the picture matched the exact image of Clementine Barnabé from the newspapers. So... I think that's an awesome bit of lore. It's not exactly substantiated, but I'm choosing to believe that version since the trail kind of goes nowhere after Clementine is released. She may have just died peacefully, just doing her own thing. Uh, she may have gone to have get a higher death count. Who knows? But I like that story the most, I think. It's definitely, now, uh, it, it definitely kind of that? shoots holes in my theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, um, well, that, that theory, you have a pretty grand one. You just got some more time to just you know hammer it together. Because you, you got a world traveler right there. Velisca, Hinterkaifeck, and then Louisiana. That's, that's, some, uh, that's some traveling. But it's still a fun one. I, under, I really enjoyed the episode, by well, the it way. Did, it did fit the time frame, though. If you follow the time frame, it was, it was time to actually do all of that. In the, uh, well, yeah, when you mentioned the axe being left at the head of the bed, I was like, yeah, the axe man did do that. And people actually have like linked this human five thing to the axe man as well. Since um, I think the X-Men only happens about six years after these murders ended, 
So maybe he, you know, um, uh, shuffled down to New Orleans and decided to just, you know, start going axe happy unless he got some jazz. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so if you want to talk a little bit of the evidence for and against Clementine, since that wraps up the story, there is no record of a church of sacrifice after this or somebody that tried to revive it. But who's to say? Because there were tons of old religions back in the day that just die off when their congregation dies off or anything else. Some people are really good at keeping secrets, and maybe she was just really bad at keeping secrets, uh, the one person in the congregation. But the evidence for it is that, like I said earlier, there's train lines between Lafayette, Crowley, Lake Charles, and Texas. And this is like something that she could reasonably do is get in a train, go somewhere, do the murders, get right back on a train and go back, and then nobody would be any the wiser. Uh, and then also, there was the clothes. She did have the dress of, I believe, Mimi Andrus in her room with brain matter on it. Like, there's no disputing that. It was that. Uh, so that says she at least killed somebody, I would confidently say, or was in the room when somebody was killed, or helped to do the cleanup, if you want to call it that. Maybe she was, like, the bucket holder. I don't know. <laughs> but that's about as far as it goes for her actual evidence. Now, there's something that you could put into a evidence for or against category. Now, she mentioned the human five in the Church of Sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. She would have had to have seen the crime scene to have known about that. Or, this could be evidence against, we don't know how the, I guess, interrogation process went for them. She could have easily heard about the murders while she was in jail, just, you know, a little hearsay, and then heard about some of the details of it and chose it and ran with it. And that's what just how this whole thing started snowballing. So that is, um, that is one possibility. Now, I can't say one way or another, but I feel like also there was a chance that the police before, you know, interrogation techniques aren't to their standard today, the police were just like, are you sure you didn't write anything strange on a wall? Like, does this Bible passage mean anything to you? And then says it. And then that's when she starts to kind of just make this story out of these few leading threads, which is sometimes what a lot of people do for attention. There are tons of false confessions every year because people want attention. Uh, and just, they might want to, you know, get their rep. You know, I'm already going to prison. I may as well admit to more things just so I, you know, look like a badass going down. The particular person I'm thinking of is um, Henry Lucas, supposedly killed hundreds of people, the Florida drifter. He really was only, you know, convicted for maybe three or four, but his story is supposedly hundreds. So some people just go for it for the attention. This may have been the situation with her. Um, also, the evidence against it that could have built this whole Church of Sacrifice thing is the fact that papers tend to sensationalize. Coming from this part of town, uh, voodoo was a real thing, and it is still a very well-practiced religion, and it was a practiced religion back then. However, a lot of people, especially the white community of this area and, you know, and consequently most of Louisiana where voodoo was mostly practiced, saw this as a bastardization of Roman Catholicism because there is elements of Roman Catholicism and Haitian voodoo just thrown into this Creole voodoo that exists in this area. And it could have just been this big scare thing because, I mean, yes, snakes are involved. Yes, there are some strange rituals with either, you know, chickens or just it, just things that aren't normal for what most people would see. It doesn't mean it's evil, though, but it's easy to make it look like it's evil. I think that um, even right now, a lot of people see voodoo as a dark thing. 
when generally voodoo is not supposed to be a violent religion. I don't have you guys covered voodoo yet at all in any of your episodes? Yeah, we actually covered uh, uh, when we did Marie Laveau and uh, Marie Brown, and we actually had a, a young lady come on and actually talk about the differences between hoodoo, voodoo, and then the uh, New Orleans style as opposed to the Haitian style voodoo. Right. Oh yeah, Marie Brown was great. She invented the first hurricane party. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but continuing off of that, I, I was my. Uh, kind of, I guess, dumbing down of voodoo, kind of sat, agreeing with what they said in the previous episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, just just making sure. Yeah, voodoo, I think, is the one that you don't want to mess with. That's the that's the black art one. I, I don't want to be offending anybody, but I think that's what I heard. It may, If not, I'm sorry. But anyway, um, continuing on with that, the papers tend to sensationalize, and not only that, you know, the game of telephone, it's what our show is about. Just, you know, one person says something, the next person says something, and then it ends up that um, just this woman, this tiny little 19-year-old girl happened to have taken out entire families at once, you know? So there is that. But the fact remains that there still was this whole crime scene of not only this uh, almost religiously posed family of murdered people, but also the writing on the wall, the actual, you know, human five signature on the door, and then the fact that all the children's hands were splayed like that. Somebody did that. And somebody was doing it intentionally, not just as a gag. I mean, maybe, but that seems a little bit too intricate to be, um, like, so just to mislead somebody. Because if you murder somebody in a house, if I was to do it, which, you know, I, don't, I guess I don't have the mind of the murderer because I have not, you know, done it. But I would want to get out there as fast as possible so I wouldn't get caught. It takes a lot of effort to actually set up the room as you see fit after you've done the killings, you know? And it, every second increases your chances of getting caught, especially if somebody hears something in another room or another house or just, you know, maybe somebody screamed before they got murdered. Just, I feel like that would be a situation where this really meant something to the person that did this. And uh, it's just, I don't know, what to, I really don't know what to land on for this case. But if it happens to be some sort of strange ritualistic cult mass, then that's one of the very first to ever actually be confirmed, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's funny you, you mentioned, like, the uh, the fact of anybody making a noise. It amazes me how many of these families were big families, four, five, six people, and somehow or another, during the act of killing one, it didn't wake up the rest of the family. And in most right. of these cases, that was that was what it was said. That that's the most amazing part to me is because I feel like there's at least some sound associated with an axe hitting a skull, blunt end or not, and that would wake up somebody or at least a moan of like pain or something like that. And not to mention, like I said, one of them was shot in the head, and I guess that was the smart thing because they thought the husband would be the stronger one that would be more likely to defend himself. So maybe they popped him off first, and then just took care of the rest of the family. As gruesome as that is, but. Um, it's just amazing that entire swaths of families, it seems like there wasn't much resistance to any of these either. The, from what I've read, there wasn't anything like, um, uh, what's it called? Defense mark, oh, defensive wounds. Like when somebody's actually trying to block themselves from being hit with an object or a weapon, there was none of that. So these people might've been like cold asleep. Now, that brings to the fact that maybe there was a coordinated group of people, in fact, and they all swung together. And that makes a chance sense. of that. But they also left only one axe. 
So that also, unless maybe the axe was just kind of like a calling card and they didn't need to leave every, you know, murder implement. So, um, yeah, that's, it's, that's just something I wanted to cover because, um, you know, we get all the Delphine Lalaurie's down here. Everybody knows about that. Everybody knows about Myrtle's Plantation. Everybody knows about, um, you know, the voodoo. And some people know about the Rougarou, which is just a fun little Sasquatch story. But in terms of uh, Clementine Barnabay and her, you know, wonderful human five, I have not seen this done anywhere else. And apologies if somebody else has done it. I want to listen to your podcast talking about it because it's probably going to be a better attempt at it than me. <laughs> well, Ryan, it was fun having you on. We greatly appreciate you coming on and sharing a little bit of your local lore knowledge. And uh, Oh, thank you for having me on. You guys are great. Um, I'm glad to have you guys on Dark Myths. Uh, we're all glad to have you on Dark Myths. It's it's been awesome seeing the place the place grow, especially with people such as yourselves blowing up too. It's just it's fun seeing everybody really coordinating, collaborating, cooperating. That's a lot of C's. Um. Yeah, I like alliteration, <laughs> you know. But thank you so much. Tell everybody how they can find your show. You can find us at rumorfliespodcast.com. Obviously, you can reach us at uh, well. Also, you can find us on any podcast platform itunes stitcher podcast addict all of them we're there we greg made a point to get us on all of them and then also if you want to contact us rumorflies at gmail.com uh we have a patreon if you want to check out some of our bonus stuff too which you know if you like our show check that out later on don't worry about that right now um but also we have an instagram which is also rumorflies and we have a twitter which we are pretty frequently on which is also just at rumorflies so it's pretty much if you just type rumor flies in Google, almost every result will be us. Awesome. Well, guys, I appreciate it and, and hope you have a lot of luck in the future. Like I said, you guys have a really good show and there's no doubt that it's just going to continue to grow and uh, uh, take take exponential growth in the near future. I can just see it happening. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I wish all the best to your podcast, too. And tell everybody else who said hey. Well, thank you so much. I will. And we'll see you soon. All right, take it easy. You are listening to the Hillbilly Horror Stories Patreon bonus episode. Please welcome your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly. All right, welcome to the August edition of our Patreon bonus episode. We've got two long stories for you tonight. Longa bonga. Okay, actually, lad, we got one really long story and one. Regular story. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> but we're not going to waste a lot of time on chit-chat. You guys get to hear enough chit-chat during the regular show. Uh, we do have some, some awesome stories, so I figured we'd just jump right into it. Are you okay with that? I'm good. Let's go. But before we do, I do want to say thank you to all of you guys because we're starting to get more and more Patreon supporters. And uh, I think this show will, will prove to you guys that we're actually trying to give you the best of the best. Um, I would be willing to bet that this Son of Sam story that we're going to do tonight will be as good, if not better, than any story we've done ever on the regular show. Well, that's a lot of pressure. It is, but 
I, I've told you guys before on a regular show, I judge a story by how many notes, pages of notes it takes. And this um, particular story on Son of Sam, I have 17 pages of notes. Oh, dang. And that's right there with the the Gary Demon House episode and the Lizzie Borden episode. I think one of them was 18, the other one was 17. So That's whack. Get it? <laughs> whack. Get it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but... I think you guys are going to really be fascinated with that. So much so that I'm going to save that one for the second story. And we're going to do the Beast of Bray Road first. Oh, all right. Usually we do the paranormal stories last. Oh, I gotcha. But we're not going to this week. Okay. So let's jump right into it. The Beast of Bray Road. I'll never be your Beast of Bray Road. Hey, I just made that up. See... As soon as you got to sing that happy birthday thing. Oh, well, I thought that was now, cool. so now all of a sudden you're trying to sing everywhere. Well, at least I said it right. I always thought it said, I'll never be your pizza burning. <laughs> now, how stupid is that? <laughs> and how did you think that you said it right when you said you're the beast of Bray Road? Because uh, that's I, not how the song goes. Uh, I've never heard Mick Jagger utter those words. Well, you don't know. Maybe it's a new hit. I'll, yeah. get, I'll get with his manager. They could, they could use a new hit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm sure out of your singing, they will get no satisfaction. Oh, <laughs> slamma. Okay, let's jump into the story before we <laughs> run everybody off and oh. get them to just pull their Patreon pledges. <laughs> All right. The funny thing about the Beast of Bray Road is most of these sightings are in the Wisconsin area. Oh. And the thing about that is all these are primarily werewolf-type settings, sightings. Oh, well, maybe they like cheese. Maybe so. Or cheap beer. Oh. Old Milwaukee. Oh. Obviously, I don't know. This this is just taking a turn for the ugly right off the bat. I'm so, sorry. Let's start over. Oh. So it seems that Wisconsin is the mecca of werewolf sightings in the U.S. I had no idea. Okay. That's why you didn't say ideal. I didn't. I was I really know. good, wasn't I? I know. Anyway, the most famous of which is the Beast of Bray Road. And that's what we're going to focus on today. These sightings are primarily took place in the 1980s and the 90s, and right in the Elkhorn, Wisconsin area. But locals will tell you there was plenty of sightings before then. So what does this beast of Bray Road look like? It's going to depend on the person. Uh, that you know, The descriptions kind of varied a little bit, mostly brown or gray fur, canine in the face, and sometimes on all four, sometimes they're standing on two legs. Um, people would say that it was about two to three foot foot when it was on all four. That mm-hmm. sounds funny. Two to three foot feet when it's on four feet. <laughs> that does sound funny. <laughs> but when it stood up, it was around seven feet. Oh, dang. Now people would say it would range between 400 and 700 pounds, and the size was different depending on the sighting. So it's kind of all over the map, oh, but God, at the same yeah. time, everybody's kind of, you kind of generalize it down. So let's talk about when this thing started. 1936, Mike Shackleman was driving on Highway 18 in Jefferson, Wisconsin. He saw a half-man, half-dog digging at the ground on at, at like an Indian burial ground. Wow. Now, keep in mind, this is 1936. There's not a whole lot of talk of stuff like that going on in mm-hmm. 1936. He said that the, the creature was about six foot tall, had the muzzle of a dog, mixed with an ape. What the hell? <laughs> Said it had long arms with three fingers, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the stench was like decaying flesh. Well, they were close enough to smell yes, it. Yes, yes. 
He left. He must have been drunk. He must have been drunk. He left. He came back the next day, and he said the creature was still there, but this time it looked at him, and it said one word and left. Shut up. Goonie goo goo. That was... was, (laughs) Quit making that up. That's... Well, what he said, the the name was... He said that it said, Gadara. Gadara, mate. Oh, we were being entirely too too silly for this. I don't know, but that's just weird. How can he fit? How can you have all those different features on one thing? Well, I mean, he was saying that it had a kind of a dog face, like a dog and an ape face mixed. I don't know. The gape. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to run everybody off. <laughs> anyway, so let's get back to he, sorry, the, y'all. The, 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 he said. We are punch drunk. We have done <laughs> we have done nothing but work for four straight weeks, and now this is like oh. the seventh show we've put out. One of them was two and a half hours long. We've done a ton of interviews. We are giddy. I'm sorry, y'all. I don't mean to be goofy. And, it just don't now sound right and to now, have an animal. And now we're at the deadline where this needs to come out. We're actually recording this at 745, and it's got to be out tonight. <laughs> so Oops. it's it's taken us this long to get everything together. And but nine, I, I and promise, nine o'clock's my bedtime. So. But I, I promise it's going to get better. I promise you. Sorry. So he said Gadara. Gadara, when you look it up, it's a place in Israel. It's also, uh, it was mentioned in the Bible several times, mostly with demonic type stories. So Ew. I don't know why this creature would look at him and say Gadara, but apparently it did. That's so weird. And then it just disappeared. 1964. He didn't say bye? 1964, Harvard, Illinois, Dennis Fiolis was driving and he said this thing just jumped in front of him and he ran through a cornfield. So the creature jumped in front of the car and then ran through a cornfield. Uh, Obviously, there was no proof of this other than just some broken corn stalks, which don't Mm -hmm. really prove anything. Yeah. 1972... There was a woman in Wisconsin that called the Department of Natural Resources to report that a large, hairy creature tried to break into her house. She called back to say that it returned to harm one of her animals, leaving a deep cut from shoulder to shoulder. Ooh. And I don't know what kind of animal it is. So Now, here's the difference on this one. They actually found a footprint that was right around 12 inches long on site. Dang, gone. So literally, the footprint was a footprint. <laughs> <laughs> September 1989. Scott Bray on a dairy farm saw a large dog, larger than a German Shepherd. Said it had pointy ears, black and gray fur. He said he followed it all the way to a rock pile, and then he kind of lost him. But once again, there were large footprints left. Mm-hmm. That same night, Russell Guest saw the same creature coming from behind some bushes on two legs. Said it was wobbling back and forth like it was uncomfortable to be on two legs. Uh, had a wolf head, very wide so- shoulders, and he assumed it was a wolf-dog hybrid. And so this was is the it, same night. is it footprints or paw prints? I don't know. Oh. It depends because the werewolf is part human. Well, so. okay. Sorry. Go ahead. 1989, in the fall, Lori and she saw something on the side of the road eating something with its paws up. So it's kind of like it was holding, I don't know if it was doing oh, you, the hokey pokey or... You, 
You mean it wasn't like he was eating something that was dead and he was on his back and his paws were up, right? No, I mean, he was sitting up and he had something laying across his paws. Oh, and he was eating his it. own paws. Yeah, like we would eat something oh. for the most part. So he described it as being, I'm sorry, she described it as being very muscular, gray and brown fur, a long snout, pointy ears, and the body was more like more like a human type body than an animal. And she said it it had yellow eyes that even looked yellow even when the light wasn't on. Hmm. So when there was no light shining on, you could still see the see eyes the were yellow. yellow. Oh wow! Now in 1990, Mike Etten was driving on Bray Road. He saw something very you know similar to what uh, Lori and Drizzy saw. It but first he thought it was just a bear. But after hearing all the other reports, he said he had to rethink that. It probably wasn't a bear. He mm-hmm. probably saw the same thing. But it was eating, sitting, you know, on the side of the road with his paws up eating something. Hmm. Okay. The most famous case, obviously, as a lot of people has heard of, have heard of, is 1999, on Halloween, of all things, 18-year-old Doristine Gibson. She said she was driving along um, Bray Road, and her car kind of jumped in the air as if she ran over something. She got out immediately because she wanted to see if she ran over something. She saw this hairy creature coming right towards her. Terrified, obviously, she jumps in the car. She took off, but then the beast jumped onto the trunk of her car. It had been raining, so luckily it just slid right oh, off. But it, her. but it did kind of scratch the back of the car up. Mm-hmm. And she said she came back later that night with a friend of hers after some trick-or-treating, and an animal was still on the side of the road. Um, she ordered the, the person she was with to lock the door. And she told uh, her neighbor the next day that, you know, what she saw. And he looked at the scratches and stuff on the car. That's kind of, you know, the most famous story of this thing. So it's the only time where anybody actually claimed that it tried to attack. And there's, you know, been a bunch of other sightings of a similar thing. And then even if you kind of cross a little bit over into Michigan, there's another cryptid over there that they call the Michigan Dog Man, which is very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost the exact same description. People seeing the same thing. So that little area, that region up there of Wisconsin and Michigan, people are kind of thinking it could be the same creature, basically. But he didn't seem like he was harmful to anybody except that one time. Yeah, well, everybody seems to think that it's got like the body of a bear, mm-hmm. but like the head of a wolf, if that makes any sense. Hmm. That's kind of the most common description. So what is it? I mean, is it a werewolf? Is it a bear dog? It's a misfit. Is it a Wendigo, a Bigfoot? I mean, some people do think that it's Bigfoot. Oh, my gosh. And, and they're just seeing it as something else, but they yeah. think that that could just be a Bigfoot. The uh, Native Americans in that area, they would consider that to be a Wendigo. A Wendigo? Yep. It's like when you got to go to the bathroom, you got to know when to go. <laughs> Good one. So, anyway, that's our quick little paranormal story tonight. So, now we can focus on... What I think is one of the better stories that we've done on this show. Son of Sam. This is a jacked up story. So, And he's, he's jacked up looking. Yeah, he is a, a little unique. So let's jump right into this. I'm kind of excited about this one. So I'll be honest with you. I almost, almost pulled this one to use on the regular show. But I thought, you know what? These guys are giving us their hard-earned cash. They deserve the best of the best. So you guys are always going to get our best stories. So Except for that one we just did, and we laughed too much, and we're sorry. We are sorry. And now we will be less, hopefully, Laughable. sorry. Or whatever. <laughs> okay, let's jump into this. 
all this really starts at early childhood, but the crime spree of it started December 24th, 1975, Christmas Eve. It was a 13-month killing spree by Son of Sam, which most people know by now is the uh, uh, gentleman known as David Berkowitz. He terrorized the streets of New York City looking for victims, basically terrorized 16 million people all by himself. Wow. Why you got to do that on Christmas Eve? I know he didn't do it all on Christmas Eve. That's a happy time. And it's kind of an odd, I don't know what the reasoning was for that, but let's go back to the very beginning. Who was David Berkowitz? Well, he was put up for adoption in the summer of 1953. Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz actually adopted him. He was only three days old. Oh, that was nice. They lived in the Bronx, and um, they couldn't have children of their own. One of David's earliest memories was being told that he was adopted. Uh, he was told that his mother died at childbirth. That was kind of a common thing, mm-hmm. you know, back then. Is I guess people just told their kids they were adopted when they were young instead of trying to hide it. I don't know. But every time they would pass by the uh, courthouse, his parents would point to it and say, that's where the courts awarded you to us because we love you more than anyone in the world, mm-hmm. which is sweet. Mm-hmm. Nathan worked six days a week at a, running a hardware store, so he was always at work. I know that feeling. Uh, Pearl, Pearl was a stay-at-home mom, and she loved to show off David. So she would always take any opportunity to brag on him, take him to places, and, you know, like she was a proud parent. It was the basics of it. Nathan would take him to uh, Yankee Stadium on occasion, and they would spend time with it. So it sounds like he really had a pretty decent childhood yeah. from that level. He was loved. David said he was given all the love in the world that he could ever want, but he was self-destructive and pushed it away. He would often get into fights at school because the kids would say that he wasn't a real kid because he was adopted. I, don't, I mean, Okay, that is just the dumbest thing ever. I don't know how all the kids find out he's adopted unless he just told yeah. them. Yeah, and um, he is a real kid, you big dummies. He felt ashamed and guilty. That his mom died, died while he, she was giving birth to Did him. she really die? Or is that what they just said? Can we get to it? Oh. Damn. <laughs> we can get to it. Oh, thank you. Hmm. He lived in fear that his dad was going to come and kill him for killing his biological mother. His imagination was fueled by horror movies that he watched all the time. So you got a warped mind. You already feel guilty about something. And you're watching all these horror movies. Yeah. What good is going to come out of that? He was so tormented by these nightmares that he would spend hours in the closet hiding, covered up with clothes, hoping nobody would find him. Oh, my. What a terrible life. He hated school. He would run home to his mom every day because he adored her, and that was the only person he felt comfortable with. So much so that he poisoned their parakeet because he saw it as a uh, basically a rival for her affection. Oh, jeez. There's the first sign of a serial killer starting to kill animals. That's always the case. Or affecting animals or hurting animals anyways she never suspected anything because that was her sweet angel Mm -hmm. i mean she this kid hung the moon and i never use that phrase but i thought it'd be fitting yeah even though he loved loved his mom he was also very aggressive towards her sometimes he would kind of yell at her and throw things at her uh, which is odd for somebody that he adored but that was just the case when he was 10 she took him to a child psychologist so she already knew something was up and didn't help because David was a secretive kid, so he didn't want to bother saying anything. He didn't want to talk about right. it. Right. When he was 11 to 12, he would sneak out of his window at nighttime. Keep in mind, New York City. Uh-uh. He would sneak out of his window and 
run the streets. Wow, that's insane. When he turned 13, he had his bar mitzvah. And in the Jewish religion, obviously, that's um, only kind of added to his guilt and shame, he said at one point, he said, I'm not a proud Jew. Jews are supposed to be honest, law-abiding, and respectful of parents. I am none of these things. I am a disgrace. Well, that poor kid. So that's the way he felt. That's so now, terrible. Now, granted, he wasn't a kid when he made those. Well, I know, but still, those comments. I mean, you have all that love and all that stuff, and you still feel like you're worthless. That's just terrible, right? So one night, shortly after his bar mitzvah, during a temper tantrum, he said something that he would have to live with the rest of his life. One of the most horrible things. And this is why you gotta, you, if there's any children out there listening, which I don't think any children are patrons, but I'm gonna say it anyway. You got to be careful what you say because you never know when you're going to get an opportunity to to correct some mm-hmm. of these bad things. In this little fit of rage, he said to his mom, she was getting ready to go out to dinner, and he said, "I hate you, I hate you, I hope you die." Uh oh. Unfortunately, nobody knew that she was actually in the advanced stages of <gasps> breast cancer. She wasn't. She collapsed at dinner that night. Oh my god. She didn't die, but they sent her to a, a cancer ward where she pretty much just wasted away and died without ever really being conscious again to be able to Aww, talk to. Oh, bless her heart. The one person that he was the absolute closest to was now gone. He cried for days, and he had lost everything when she died, as far as he was concerned. She was it. He was very lonely, very shy. He's one of these type of, of kids that would blush really easily. Now he's a teenager. I mean, he's just mm-hmm. getting into you know, 13, 14 years old. He was extremely shy around girls. Sometimes he would drive his bike for hours around town. Mostly, he'd go to the cemetery to visit his mom's grave, and he would just stay there for hours, fascinated by the headstones. He would always look at the ones and say, you know, the ones that died young Mm -hmm. and always be fascinated. He would even wonder to himself about the the girls, if they were pretty or not pretty. Oh, gosh. You know, signs right there. Things starting to turn. Yeah, that's kind of sick. His dad would plead to him and, and to say, look, hey, come talk to me, you know, and, but David wouldn't have talked her. So he just, you know, he said, kept even it though, all bottled up, kept it all bottled up. And, and, uh, in 1971, he graduated high school, barely, because he missed so much school that, you know, truancy almost kept him from graduating. He then immediately enlisted into the army. The funny thing was when he went to the army, he used to fantasize about being a hero. Mm-hmm. That was one of his things. He wanted to go to Vietnam and, and actually die in Vietnam a hero. That was his goal. Instead, he was sent to Korea, where he qualified as a sharpshooter with an M16. He tried to find a girlfriend over there, but like in the right around the Korean camps and stuff where mm-hmm. he was, there were all kinds of, around the base, all kinds of hookers yeah. and stuff like that. So he tried to actually find a girlfriend mm-hmm. through those means. Aww. And um, in the end, though, he said it was he found it degrading. So. Yeah. He wrote a letter to his father apologizing um, pretty much for being a, a huge disgrace and amounting to nothing in life. He said that he didn't amount to anything in society, and, and uh, he's sorry that he turned out the way that he did. Stupid, hateful, ugly, and destructive. God. He begged his father to forget that he even existed. Oh, my gosh. Well, he needed a major hug. Yeah. 1973, the Army transferred him to Fort Knox, Kentucky. Nuh-uh. Yep. 
He started attending a Baptist church there and soon became baptized. He felt like he had found a family that he actually belonged there. He liked the idea that um, he would see these families going to church. Mm -hmm. And that was like Sunday was church day and the whole family got together. And then the whole family went to eat dinner and that he really liked that concept of it. Then all the preaching, though, that he would go through kind of reminded him that he was going to go to hell in his opinion. And it was just a constant reminder of what the, the end result was going to be and how negative it was going to be and how bad it was going to be in hell. So he decided that the religion thing didn't really need to last long, and he kind of went away from the church. Hmm. 1974, he was discharged from the Army after several for him and decided to return back to New York. He started classes at the Bronx Community College. Mm-hmm. Now, Nathan, his dad since all this had taken place with the uh, uh, him being in the military and everything, he remarried a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he's now he's remarried to what was now his David's stepmom, and he moves to Florida. David resented his new stepmom and her daughter for basically invading his home and taking his dad away. Hmm. That's the way he looked at it. David, now 21, felt like that, he had not like a curse on him, but he just had like a some kind of force around him that basically repelled people from him. And he calls himself a uh, dismooch, which is Yiddish for dirty one. Definitely wow. didn't have a very high, high self-esteem. For no, not at all. So he goes out, he gets his own apartment, gets a job as a night watchman. He started thinking more and more about his real mom at this point. He started aggressively trying to find out anything he could about her. He went to a freedom of adoption meeting and told his story, basically. You know, it's kind of like a freedom of adoption meeting was for kids that had been adopted, people who had been adopted, kind of like an AA meeting or Mm -hmm. something. It's a support group. And he goes to this thing, and he starts telling people his story, saying, oh, my mom died, you know, when I was born. And people start laughing. And he's like... Oh, Lord. I mean... What the hell's wrong with all you people? I'm telling you this sad story. My mom died during childbirth, and and they're like the people there are like that's what they tell all of us. He had no clue. And he's like, "What do you mean?" He said, "All of us are told that our mom died during birth." So he calls his dad Nathan up in Florida, and he he just basically demands the truth. And Nathan told him that she was alive, and the adoption agency suggested um, that they were told that. And he said that was just. It was, that's what basically all the adoption agencies back then would tell anybody adopting a baby, tell them that their real mother died so they would not ever, you know, wonder about their parents or it, it supposedly would have been the easy way out. Well, yeah, but that's cruel. So David was stunned to say the least. I mean, all of this guilt that he'd suffered his whole life, he's 21. Yeah. He spent his entire life. Yeah. guilty because he thought his mom died during childbirth blaming himself and now all of a sudden he finds out she's not dead see that's a shitty way to do those kids he goes and he finds out doing some research he finds his original birth certificate through the adoption agency his name was richard david falco his parents were betty and tony falco he searched for basically almost a year he didn't find them no luck I mean, it's a lot harder back in the 70s oh, yeah, than I'm sure. it would be yeah. today with Google I and mean, all Falco that I mean, Falco, too, is kind of an unusual name, so. Yeah, probably not so unusual in New York. Oh. It's kind of a, 
you know, I would I would assume that's probably an Italian name, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of Italians in New York. Yeah, not stereotyping, but I'm just saying yeah. there's a lot of no, Italians. No, I, in New I York. understand. Frustrated, David. Obviously, he tried this whole religion thing during his army days. Now decided to try something a little different. He joined a satanic cult. Well, that's way the other way. (laughs) (laughs) He liked the fact that they had late night meetings in the woods and all the chants. He liked all the drugs and the opportunity to meet girls. Because, you know, that's where I find the best opportunity to meet girls is satanic cults. Yeah, hey. So, anyways, he basically connected easily to the dark forces that he worshipped in the satanic cult a lot more easily than he did the the lighter forces when he was in the mm-hmm. Baptist or the Jewish religion. He even made a blood pact to serve the devil. Now see, that just really pisses me off because, no, seriously, if they had just not told them kids this, his life would have totally probably been totally different and he wouldn't be famous for what he did. Oh, you're probably right. I mean, that's just awful. I mean, when you think about it, and this guy, he was trying, all he really wanted, I, I mean, I say that, I can't say all he really wanted was to be loved because he had love, and at the same time, he still had issues. Well, yeah. Nah, I don't know. I just don't understand that whole but thing. But you think about this. He's 20, 21, 22 years old. He's already been a Jew, a Baptist, and a Satan worshiper. Yeah. This is somebody, he's searching for something. Well, yeah. All right, so after... Basically, a year now, he actually found his birth parents. His thoughts in his head were, oh, my God, this is going to be the perfect family. It's mm-hmm. my mom, my real mom, my real dad, and I wonder if they got brothers, sisters, and yeah. he can't wait. He's all excited about it. Um, that didn't really last long Aww. because when he met Betty, Betty basically... I guess was kind of average. He expected this like June Cleaver type mom, I guess. And it was this little meek lady Mm -hmm. that, and she had this annoying voice according to him. And she was like this Jewish voice or she, or whatever, but this, she had this voice where she could, she kept, kept saying something like, I'm sorry, Richie. I'm sorry. And he said, just the sound of it just Mm -hmm. made him want to put his, hand over his ears mm-hmm. and he said it took everything he had to just not strangle her on the spot <laughs> oh my God. and so he's like well you know what he said i'm i'm just gonna tell her i forgive her mm-hmm. and i love her and i'm gonna move on what about dad and that's what he did that's a good point because what let's talk about dad so <laughs> he finds out through talking with her he's like you know i'm sure she had a good reason for giving me up Mm -hmm. no turns out tony wasn't his real dad it was a guy named joseph kleinman joseph kleinman was a very well-off jewish um industrialist back then he was he was pretty much a a well-to-do businessman Mm -hmm. and he had a reputation we're talking about the you know the 50s and she was pregnant with his baby while she was having an affair so the truth of the matter is he was given up because he was an inconvenience. Mm. He, it was a shame um, because this wealthy businessman's like, I'm not going to have my name drug through the mud, but having an illegitimate kid. And then the mom, she don't really want to have this kid around. That's really not 
her husband's, so they gave him up for adoption. So you can imagine then this kid that's been searching for love his entire life. He meets finally meets his parents and thinks they're both losers. And he finds out that he basically his work, his way of putting it was I didn't ask to be born to begin with. Yeah. And now I find out that I didn't even have to be born. I was an inconvenience because people playing around mm-hmm. basically and mm-hmm. not being careful. And now I've lived this life that I don't want to live because of that. Man. He did though find out that he had a half sister and she had two daughters and he loved them. Mm-hmm. He was going over to their house. It was almost like that his little half sister was going overboard to try to make up for the Aww. mistakes mom well, made. Good. I'm glad something good came out he of had it. The, he had the two little kids over there and they would um they would run and jump in his arms when he came over for dinner and call him Uncle Richie and he liked that. But he said as time went on, I guess the just the hatred for what happened to his real mom and dad and then all that, what really went on, it started to get to the point where he felt like he wanted to kill his entire family. But he liked his half-sister. He loved those little kids. And he just felt it was better that he just disappear, quit coming around. Yeah. And it was kind of odd that he told his half-sister, of course, it all made sense later, he said that he would never hurt her or her daughters. Which is just an odd thing to say to somebody before you just disappear. But that's what he did. Now we're up to Christmas Eve, 1975. For some reason, he tried to stab a 14-year-old girl through her thick winter coat. Well, the knife wouldn't go through the coat. And what he ended up doing was just basically struggling with her. She got away. And during that whole process, he cut himself. Mm -hmm. And he was like... I'm not going to do this anymore. So he decided that the next time that he was going to do something like this, it was going to be a little more impersonal and he was going to use a gun. <laughs> Basically. Uh, yeah. He just said for somebody who's, who was withdrawn as he was, he didn't need to be that close to people. Mm. So he was just going to do gonna it. He's going to shoot yep. from afar. Yep. He decided he was just going to get a gun. So in the spring of 1976, he couldn't sleep at his place because he said the dogs that were barking next door, just barking nonstop, it just got on his nerves. That's going to come into play a little later, too, as you're going to see a theme. He moved to an apartment building by the Hudson River, only to find, guess what? More dogs. Oh, man. <laughs> Don't he check that crap out before he moves in? Who checks out who's got dogs that bark? Well, I'm- are you going to camp out for a couple of nights and scope the situation? I mean, are you talking about dogs in the park or dogs in the apartment? No, these are dogs, I guess, next to, I don't know. Oh. They were dogs next door. Well, no, the dogs were next door to him. Okay. 1976 to 1977, he drove a taxi. He worked at the post office. <laughs> he did a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd sometimes drive to the beach and just sleep in his car just to get some peace. Yeah. He would take long walks on the beach the whole time just to try to clear his head, think about stuff. I mean, as he got older, older this thing started churning within him, and that's obviously where we're getting ready to start getting to the, the bad stuff. Now at 23 years old, he decided that he needs to slay a woman. He needs to kill a woman just to kind of get revenge for how he's been treated. I so, mean, Yeah, okay. That makes no sense. But, I mean, that's in his thoughts. That's what would fix stuff. So he went to Florida to see his dad. 
His dad caught him staring into a mirror and pounding himself in the head. Oh. He tried and tried to get David to go get help, but David wouldn't go get help. Not only would he not go get help, he told his dad it was too late. He drove to Houston to visit a friend that he had from the Army, and he talked his friend into buying him a forty-five caliber bulldog. Or a forty-five bulldog, I'm sorry. And uh, he said that he needed it for protection on the way back to New York. So his friend, you know, went ahead and did that. Now these barking dogs become unbearable. You got this sexual frustration building up in him. July 29, 1976, Jody Valente was dropping off her friend Donna Loria in the Bronx. David saw them. They were laughing. They were parked. Just having a good time in front of the, their apartment mm-hmm. building. He circles around a little bit, sees them. Then he decides he's going to drive about two blocks down. He parks his car. He walks back, circles around the car. Well, Jody turns around and sees him. And she says, who's there? He pulls the gun out of a brown paper bag and just started shooting. And then he just kind of stood there frozen. Like he can't believe what he did. Mm-hmm. Donna, I'm sorry, Jackie, uh, Jackie, Jody kind of leaned forward and just started hitting the horn. Mm-hmm. Well, Donna's dad was in the apartment building upstairs. He sees what's going on. He rushes out. David, by the time her dad gets there, he's already took off running. Yeah. Dad comes down there. He grabs Donna up into his arms, but by that time, it was too late. late. She was dead. Jody was shot in the thigh, but she was able to give a full description of it. Yeah. Because he stood there staring at her, so she got a really good look. He fled in a 1970 yellow Ford Galaxy. Now, he said that he felt a certain level of peace. Ninja, we're talking about a guy who don't like barking dogs, and now you're going to jump in here. Do you want Son of Sand to come visit you? (laughs) I'll protect you, Ninja. You will not. All right, so (laughs) anyway, he said that he felt a level of peace after shooting them. Mm -hmm. And then he said that it was like, a sexual, or it was like having an orgasm, yeah. but it wasn't a sexual orgasm. It was more like a mental one. Mm-hmm. He said it was after the shooting, he felt like he was walking on air. Oh, wow. Now, keep in mind, at at this point, he didn't know if he'd killed anybody or not. He just knew that he'd shot into the car. Yeah. He didn't know until the next day when he was reading the New York Post and saw that somebody was somebody shot. was actually killed. After that, he started cruising the streets almost every single night looking for victims. He would cruise through neighborhoods that bordered the highway. So that was kind of his MO. And then you're, you're going to find that most of his victims mm-hmm. were all within like a two, three, four block radius of where this was. Almost oh, wow. everything was right there. Oh. The fall of 76, he wounded two girls and a guy that he probably mistook for a woman. One was paralyzed. One was shot in the neck, and the male had to have a a mental plate put in his head. Oh, gosh. He knew at this point in time, this is according to his own words, that he was crossing a moral threshold where a human actually has the ability to play God. He He could decide who lived and who died. 
Sicko. Now, this is where you start realizing how really screwed up this guy is. He also, at the same time, fantasized about being a hero. He would drive around looking for victims, but at the same time, he was also looking for people to save. What do you mean? Just in general, if he's looking for people in distress. He always had emergency equipment in the back of his car in case he ran across like a burning building. Or he, I mean, he literally <laughs> Man, had thoughts of saving saving somebody from a burning building and being a hero. At yeah. the same time, he's looking for somebody, somebody to, kill. to kill. That is really twisted and messed up. In February of 1977, he, with his gun in his pocket, mind you, he helped teenagers push a car out of a snowbank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of stuff he was doing. Mm-hmm. Yet later on that night, he killed a uh, secretary by the name of Christian Frowned. Oh. Now, keep in mind, police didn't have any idea that all these murders were connected. So is he just he's just basically killing women, though. Yes. And we'll get into a little more details about that. There was a ballistics expert that kept seeing the same bullet now. It was three different murders at this point, And he thought... Well, this is kind of a unique gun. And now he's starting to see mm-hmm. this bullet in some cases. Yeah. And he's like, hey, we've, we've got a wacko out there. Because at this point, nobody had put two and two together. Five weeks later, on March 8th, the fifth attack happened. Virginia. Vastur. <laughs> I'm going to try this. I would just say Virginia because that's a long butt name. Virginia Vastur. Vestavreacher, he came up upon her. She seen him. She held up her school books. She's come home from school. She held them up to protect to herself. Her, yeah, she held them up to her face. He shot through the shoot through the school books and shot her in the head and killed her. No. Oh. By now, everybody's starting to put two and two together with the police. Yeah. He was known as the forty-four caliber killer. That's what the the newspapers were starting to call him. That's what the police were calling him. Mm-hmm. At this point, he was mainly killing and going after wounding women with short, I'm sorry, women with long brunette hair. Mm-hmm. That's what they were looking. So what started happening was he was terrorizing the town so much that women started cutting their hair short. Oh, I was going to say. They started wearing their hair up and they started dying it. If oh, they had God. dark hair, they would dye it blonde or red or whatever because they thought he was only looking for... yeah. You know, I would I would have done the same thing. Right. But so that's kind of that's kind of was the thought process. Now in April of 1977 his neighbor Sam Carr with the barking dogs he wrote a letter to him to Sam. And he basically said if you don't control your dogs I'm going to take legal action. This is a guy that's out killing people, mm-hmm. wounding people. But he's going to write a letter to his next-door neighbor saying he's going to file legal action. He showed in this letter that he wrote him how much he really wanted a relationship. This is according to experts after the fact, reading this stuff. Because keep in mind, up to this point, as far as I know, he's never been with a woman. I don't get why he wrote a letter. Okay, I'll I'm, let you finish. Yeah, I'm there's got to be point. something in there. Right. Well... The the letter that he wrote to Sam Carr, it talked about a wife that he had, which he really didn't have. He basically said, look, 
you know, my wife and I are wanting to spend some time alone. We've taken some time off work to be together, to to be able to read, to make love, to just sleep in if we want to. And we're not getting any peace at all because you're barking dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, why he didn't just write and say, hey, your dogs are barking. I can't get any sleep or it's getting on my yeah, nerves. Yeah, why he had to put all he that in He put there. all this into. So that, that tells people, that's, it tells the uh, FBI profilers that he really would wanted to be in a relationship. Yeah. He's. At this point, he gets no response at all from Sam Carr, his neighbor. So now he's wrote this letter. Nothing comes back. April 17th at 3 a.m., he's heading home, and he walks up to a patrol car, and he drops a note. Now, you got to keep in mind, the cops now are kind of on to some of what's going on. And this, this is going to sound extremely stupid, but after they figured out the bullets mm-hmm. they started talking about um this guy has an mo uh-huh. and his mo is very similar to starsky and hutch some episodes of starsky and hutch they literally watched every episode of starsky and hutch hoping it would give them a lead oh my goodness so he drops this now that he knows that the cops are looking for him and it's starting to come out in the paper he starts getting kind of cocky so you mean he dropped a note in the police car with the police in it? I don't think the cop was there, but oh. there was a patrol car. He literally had this sealed up letter that had a detective's name on it. On the outside of the letter, the envelope. He drops it by the patrol car. Then he walks straight up to a car and starts firing into the car. Valentina Siriana and Alexander Esau were both killed instantly. The note was the first solid lead that they actually had on him. I mean, everybody kind of was starting to put two and two together. They had, they had, you know, eyewitness accounts of what the guy looked like, but they didn't have anything to tie him. Well, I guess he used gloves to drop the... Oh, I don't know. Yeah, because uh, couldn't they have got fingerprints I'm off sure of the I'm sure they probably could have. We're still talking in the 70s. I don't know how oh. good all their oh. fingerprint technology was back in the 70s. So here's what some of the letter says. I'm, I, I am hurt by how you're calling me a woman hater. I'm not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I love to hunt, prowl the streets. I don't want to kill anymore, period. But I must honor thy father. Let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. Kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But Arnold didn't kill people like that. It was, well, he did, but. That is so crazy. This started the biggest manhunt ever in New York City. It's like I said, they, they did all the Starsky and Hutch stuff. Uh, a week later, he wrote Sam Carr another letter. He said, it's obvious I'm not going to have any peace in my life until I end your life. Oh, gosh. So, well, that's pretty straightforward. Then he shot and wounded his dog. Aw. Right. Dogs bark. That's what they do. The papers um, were starting to really come out and try to even put stuff in. The papers came out, and they said, hey, son of Sam, you need to give up. This is actually headlines in the paper. Oh, wow. He responded with a very eerie poem. 
and I'll read you some of it. He says, hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. I'm still here. I'm like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest. Anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been fulfilled. Hmm. And none of that rhymed, by the way. Well, you know, not all poems rhyme. <laughs> not one damn thing rhymed. That's a turn off. <laughs> <laughs> June 26, 1977. He stalked out a disco in Queens. He shot and wounded two more girls. But see, this was a little different because he hadn't went to Queens in any of them. Mm. All Everything I told you before, remember, it was in yeah. like a couple of... Like two, three, four blocks. block radius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not only that, you know, he it, it was a disco, so they probably deserved it. No, they did I'm, not. Okay, I'm just kidding. But it no. was but it was disco. He should have just shot all the albums. Well, he shouldn't shoot at all. How but if you're going to shoot something, disco albums would have been the thing yeah, to shoot. Yeah, well, I love disco, so. Whatever. July 31st. <sighs> it's another name I have trouble pronouncing. Stacy Moskowitz. And Robert Viel. <laughs> Why does everybody in the city have to have a hard name? Mm-hmm. We're talking about New York City, and you'd think I was talking about Russia or something. Mm-hmm. So Stacy Moscovich and Robert Violeta. Sorry, Robert, if you're still alive. They were making out in a car, like hot and heavy making mm-hmm. out. He shot both of them while they were making out. That's just rude. Stacy. Lived for 39 hours before she passed. Aww. Robert lost one eye and was partially blinded in another eye. Oh, my gosh. Now, because of the fact that this thing, his, you know, he was starting to become famous for all this, mm-hmm. her murder was was basically all over the world's news at this point. It, it made headline news everywhere. Why? Well, part of the fact was... It, now the police were starting to have the letters and all this mm-hmm. stuff, and this is really the first one after the letters. Yeah. So now the fact that they had leads and stuff and they had the biggest manhunt going on, it just was something that everybody now was keeping up with. Okay. He finally feels important. I mean, because, yeah, because people, he's yeah. all over the place. He, he's the son of Sam, and he's mm-hmm. all over the papers. I mean, here's the thing, though, about Stacy. He also, we told you he went outside the area to Queens. Yeah. Which gives a whole different level of scaredness because people in Queens wouldn't worry about him because he wasn't going out there. Right. Stacy was short hair and blonde. He was the exact opposite Opposite. of what he had been doing. So now he basically just hasn't, he can scare everybody now because now it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what part. Now he can be anywhere. Here's the funny thing. The night that he killed Stacy, he watched cops actually put a parking ticket on his car. Damn. He paid the parking ticket a week later. Cops tracked the car down to David Berkowitz. They discovered that he had been sending harassing letters to several people, including a man named Sam Carr that said he shot his dog. 
That's what you get for paying your damn parking ticket. <laughs> right. Dumb, dumb. So August 10th, 1977, they had a large team of agents sat outside of his apartment building. He came walking out with a paper bag, got into the car. Then a cop came over to him, pointed a gun on him, told him to freeze, which he did. He looked up at the cop and said, well, you finally got me. And the cop says, who do I have? He said, the son of Sam. No fights. I can't believe he gave up that easy. Yep, no fights, no struggle. Just flat up. And the cop was like, yeah. <laughs> he confessed to everything. He revealed details that only the killer would have known. known. Yeah, wow. Not only that, he enjoyed talking about it. Well, I, I can see that. He smiled nonstop. If you look at any videos mm-hmm. of him being taken in by police, walking through the courtroom, there's video footage of him in the back of the police cruiser. He is grinning ear to ear. Kind of scary when you think about mm-hmm. it. Police said that he was very nice and polite. They asked him why he paid the parking ticket. And he said, because I'm a law-abiding citizen. <laughs> oh, God. Apparently, he doesn't know what that means <laughs> all the way. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank God he paid that parking ticket. He came out and said that he was ordered to kill by demons. And his name, his neighbor, Sam Carr, was the devil. Hmm? And Sam Carr was the one putting all this into his head, mainly, and sending his demons to... Oh, wow. And he, and that's why he was hearing the barking dogs and all that. It was just a way of, of tormenting him, basically. He spent eight months um, being evaluated to see if he was fit to stand trial. Mm-hmm. Now, the people where he was staying at, it was, it was still like a jail, but it was more like a mental institution slash jail. Yeah. They said that for the first several months he was there, that he ate like a horse and slept very well. I mean, that doesn't sound like somebody that's got any concerns whatsoever. Mm-mm. He said that he didn't have um, anything against any of his victims, that they never did anything to him, but Sam wanted them all dead. Therefore, he's got to do what pleased his master, which was Sam. Now you've moved forward just a little bit longer, and those feelings kind of went away to where now he's feeling suicidal. Uh, They found out that he was fit to stand trial, and he decided against his attorney's wishes to plead guilty. He called his dad uh, to tell his dad that he was going to plead guilty and to forgive him for that, which... I imagine his dad probably didn't want to have shit to do with him. Well, I would say not. And when his dad found out that he was the killer, um, there was a press conference with his dad, and his dad just said that he just sat and cried. Hmm. You know, because he said he knew he had issues, and just to know that his his son that they brought up yeah. was responsible for killing six people and wounding seven others hmm. in a year's time and causing so much other havoc and terror on a city. That it just was too much to handle. So I don't know why he would even call his dad to say, "Hey, I'm sorry for pleading guilty." But what? 
you did it. I mean, what, well, yeah. the pleading guilty part ain't what you need to be apologizing for. Yeah, and Maybe. just imagine how hard that is on his dad to have to live with that. And, and his dad, by this time, was like in his late 60s. He's like 67, 68 years old. So mm-hmm. he was starting to be an older guy. And, uh, so anyway, so in, in May 1978, he pleaded guilty. Two weeks later, on, on the day of the sentencing, this is weird in its own self, he threw this tantrum, right? Mm-hmm. He broke the restraints that they had him on. Oh, my gosh. He went into the courtroom. They get, you know, finally corral him, get him into the courtroom. He sees Stacy Moskowitz's mom, and he starts saying, Stacy was a whore. Stacy was a whore. To the mom. What the hell? And then he screamed, that's right. I killed him, and I'd kill him all again. Well, they pull him out of the courtroom. June 13th, which is about two weeks later, they bring him back in. And this time he's like a completely different person. He's completely calm and mm-hmm. all that. And 